Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you enjoy. All right, so uh, here's kind of why we do this. Um, like, I want you to know that, like, as a pastor, like, you can ask questions, right? And if you've been in my youth group for a while, you know that I hammered this into you. Like, ask questions, ask questions. Like, don't believe because mom and dad believe, right? Like, make your faith your own. Make it personal. And the only way you're going to do that is by doubting, by challenging, right? And so uh, you have no permission now, forever and ever, because a pastor has told you to not believe this because someone told you to believe this, right? So ask questions, right? And again, um, I may not have the answer to your question, but it doesn't mean there isn't an answer to your question. I'll try my best by next week to get you an answer, all right? Um, or come and talk to me uh, after this. Um, all right, so um, we do this for one reason. Um, I want you and I to be truth seekers, and I think that if you are willing and authentic and genuine in your quest for truth, you'll find its author, that person being God. I believe God is the author of all truth. And so if we're, uh, if we're genuine and seeking truth, we'll find its author. Let me pray for us really quick, and let's, uh, let's hop into this. Father, we're so thankful that you have given us minds that are logical and rational, that can study and, and, and yeah, ask questions and critique. So Father, as we kind of jump into some challenging questions today, I pray, Father, that you would, number one, give me the wisdom and discernment, God, to navigate these appropriately. But number two, Lord, you would continue to impress upon our hearts, God, people who seek uh, truth. Father, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. All right, first question. Um, let's see what I got. Uh, when did I lose my virginity? <laughs> uh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was 17. No, I'm playing. Uh, I, was, uh, I was married, actually. Um, it was on my wedding night. That's when, I, that's when I lost my virginity. All right. Um, what is your favorite New Testament story or teaching? Uh, that's a good question. All right. All right. If you have your Bibles, go with me to John chapter 4. All right. John chapter 4. Um, I think verse 4. John chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, just uh, go on your phone and type in John chapter 4, um, ESV. Is this the ESV? Yes. No, NIV. Go in the NIV. All right. Um, I'm going to read part of the story. So if you want to follow along with me, it'd be good for you to have your Bibles out. Uh, Here we go. John chapter 4, starting in verse 4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was right. All right. Let me know when you got your Bibles. Everyone got your Bible? Perfect. You got your Bibles out? Sick. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite stories. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, this, is a, this is a great story. Um, it's, it's an interesting story that I've read uh, tons of times, but many of its, like, its context clues have like, kind of gone right over my head. So uh, it says this. It says, uh, now he had gone, th- he, uh, this is interesting. It says, now he, talking about Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So like what, what's going like like so it says talking about Jesus he had to go through Samaria it's called the divine imperative it means that the father willed it and that the son had to do it uh, so he came to a town in Samaria called uh, Sinar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son uh, Joseph Jacob's well was there and Jesus tri- tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well and it was about noon all right so here's what's interesting Jesus goes to this place called Samaria Samaria was not a popular place for Jewish people let's just say it was like it would be the equivalent of like I don't know, like a Christian going through like ISIS territory, like not popping, you know, like that's not where you're trying to go, right? So let me give you some context on like who the Samaritans were in the ancient world. So um, if you remember, we did a series through the book of Daniel, it was called Failing Faith. 
Uh, no, no, it wasn't. It was called Canceling Culture. Failing Faith was a series before that. Um, cancel Culture, or Canceling Culture, was a series that we did 12 or 13 weeks through the book of Daniel. Daniel is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar um, led the mightiest nation in the world, Babylon. He went and conquered the nation of Israel and made all of the young, talented men and women walk 400 miles to Babylon from Israel. Now, the people that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar left in Israel um, were, weren't like the most educated uh, uh, Jews. They were kind of like, they didn't come from good families, things like that. So the women of those families, to like stay uh, alive, they had to kind of intermarry with people of other faiths and religions. And so they did that. So it's really forbidden if you were Jewish is to marry or date somebody that was non-Jewish, right? And so they started like intermarrying inter, uh, with people of other faith systems. And eventually, centuries later, these became the Samaritan people. So they were hated. Why? Because it was believed that when, when King, Nebuchadnezzar, King, King Nebuchadnezzar took all of the uh, most bright, young, uh, and beautiful people from Israel, that those people were supposed to stay back in Israel, the people he didn't take, and to preserve the faith. They did the opposite of that. Instead of preserving the faith, they, they, they uh, abandoned their faith just to survive. And so they, they started intermarrying and things like that. So the Jews and Samaritans for centuries, were, they, they hated each other. The Jews blamed them for the dissembling of their faith. And the Samaritans were like, well, you guys left and you couldn't protect us any longer. And so there's this deep kind of anger and hate towards the two of them. Follow with me. It says this. Um, verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So here's another thing. Uh, wells in the ancient world were actually kind of romantic. And why they were romantic was, is because women were always in charge of getting water for the house. And even modern, modern day, like Africa, for example, I've been there, and you'll see the women carrying water jugs on their necks, and they'll, they'll walk like miles, and they don't have to balance it. It's crazy. So it's actually kind of like wells we're seeing like in ancient poetry as like a romantic place, which is like weird. Um, okay. Uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. Uh, how can you associate me, or I'm sorry, how can you ask me for a drink? Uh, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So, so uh, continue with me. Uh, there's so much here. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, I'm sorry, verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with in the well is deep. Where can you get living water? Are you greater than your father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be a, come in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. This is where it gets like Jerry Springer. Uh, Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. The man you're now with or now you're sleeping with is not your husband. Uh, what you have is just said is quite true. So here's what's, here's what's great about this story. It has absolutely nothing to do with real water. And you go, duh. Like he's not actually talking about like Aquafina. That's not the story here, right? He's actually talking about something kind of way deeper. And why I like this story so much is he's kind of pointing out something to her. He's kind of, he says, hey, you have to keep coming back to this water, this well. Why? Because you have an appetite for, for you thirst, right? And what I love so much about this is he's drawing your attention to not a physical need, but a spiritual need. So he, he begins to talk to her about this, and he says, all right, go and get your husband. He's like, well, that's kind of a weird thing. Why would Jesus interrupt the narrative by saying, go get your husband? And the whole point of go get your husband is because he is pointing out in her something that she has been using in her life to find her identity in, relationships with men. 
And so he basically says, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. And he goes, yeah, you're right. You've had five of them. And the person that you're sleeping with currently is not your actual husband. And she's like dumbfounded. You can imagine, right? And here's why I like this. The story is about what are the wells in your life? Each one of us has something that we go back to that we think is going to fulfill us, something that's going to thirst, uh, something's going to quench the thirst of our soul. What is that in your life? It could be a relationship. It could be uh, uh, your occupation. It could be um, the dreams of having money one day. We all have a well in our lives that we think is going to fulfill us, right? And Jesus basically says, if you keep looking for a physical answer to a spiritual need, you're going to continue to be empty and longing. And I love that teaching. And so it's one of my, uh, my, I'll, I'll probably give a whole sermon on this. In the next few weeks, I like it a lot. I'm just giving you a little bit because there's a billion more things to be said. But yeah, all right. Um, let's see what else we have. Uh, is it good or healthy for? Is it good, healthy, normal for a Christian to fear being Matthew seven twenty three? What is Matthew seven twenty three? Let's well, let's find what Matthew seven twenty three says. Matthew seven twenty three. Matthew seven twenty three. Then I will tell them plainly: I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. <laughs> Perfect. Um, if you're truly a follower of Jesus, the answer is no. That's not going to be something that's said to you. So if you actually have a flourishing relationship with Jesus Christ, that's not something that you need to fear. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then yeah, that's something that you should fear. All right. Um, why do you think it's so hard to prioritize God in our daily lives over worldly things or not just having enough time? Here's the truth, right? You prioritize things that you find are worthy and valuable. I mean, you made time to do your homework. You made time to go through college or you're still in college, right? Right? Like, the truth is, you make time and you carve out times for things that you find are appropriate and things that you think are valuable. And so if you don't actually, like, care about this, if this is a stoic book that's old and dumb and God is kind of distant, then, of course, you're not going to make, you're not going to make him a priority in your life, right? And so why do I think it's hard to prioritize God in your daily lives? It's because you don't value him. You value the shiny things of this world. And you think, here's the truth, we do not value our relationship with God because we think that this world has better things to offer us. That's the truth. You think that this world has better things to offer you, and so you prioritize those things. Or you're lazy and apathetic. Apathy is probably the worst place to be. Apathy is, I'm indifferent about spiritual things. And that's probably the most dangerous place to actually be. And so the truth is, it's because there's a huge area of unbelief in your life. Why do you think so many of the apostles or disciples often prayed, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Lord, help me in my, and I pray that daily over myself. God, there are still areas in my life where I'm disbelieving and not trusting in you. Help me in my unbelief. And so why do I think it's hard to prioritize God in our daily lives? Um, Because we're prioritizing things we probably shouldn't. In the book of Romans chapter 12, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. In other words, a pattern is what? A pattern is something that predates you. It's a way in which this world operates. Uh, It teaches its young to grow up and prioritize and value certain things. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? Well, by reading God's word. And so uh, we are not prioritizing our relationship with God because we're following other patterns for, the, for what we think is going to be successful, what's going to bring us the best type of life or whatever it is. But scripture tells us that the best type of life that you can live is one where you're following Christ. It's a good question. All right, what's the difference between Mormonism and Christianity? Perfect. Um, where to start? All right, so they have, uh, there's three things that come to mind. Uh, one is called apotho- uh, apothogenesis, um, which is, or the Adam-God doctrine, or the eternal law of progression. All right, so Mormons, if you don't know what Mormons believe, is they believe that you can become a god when you die. And they believe that Jesus is Satan's brother, 
and both offered God the Father, who is a, who's the, who is a God that lives on a planet called Kolob. Um, they offered them plans for salvation. And God the Father, who lives on Kolob, liked Jesus' plan better. And that's the reason that Jesus and Satan are in this galactic war with each other. Wow, that couldn't be further from Scripture, right? Um, but the, God, the Adam-God doctrine is even another crazy doctrine. It believes that Jesus Christ was a person in another world and that he lived a good Mormon life and when he died, became the God over this one. That couldn't be further from what the, te- like the New Testament teaches about who Jesus Christ is. He's a second member of the Trinity and things like that. So there is nothing remotely similar about Mormonism and Christianity. Mormonism at its heart is polytheistic, poly meaning more than one, theistic God, and Christianity is monotheistic, one God. Uh, can you do a series on other religions and what they believe and the difference between them and Christianity? We actually did this. Um, it was uh, called Cults. No, it's called Counterfeit Gospels and Cults. Um, I actually think it's on our podcast. You're welcome to go uh, find it. All right, what's our next book or Bible study? This is a great question. All right, so I have a few more weeks planned out for this series, um, but I need your help on what to do after this. And so, uh, in fact, I'm going to give you a minute. I want you to turn and discuss with some of the people that are around you. What do you want to be talking about at Young Adults? Is there a book of the Bible? Are there questions that you want to do? And I'm going to ask you guys, all right? So turn to a neighbor. What do you guys want to be studying next, our next series? Um, or what are some other maybe hot topics you want to talk about, all right? I'm going to give you a minute, turn, discuss. Ready, set, Go. All right, all right, bring it up, bring it up. Let me hear. I need your guys' help. So uh, what are some other hot topics you want to talk about? Or what are some, like, upcoming sermon series that you guys want to do? Anyone? Just anything in the Old Testament? Any of the 39 books? Okay, perfect. The book of Jeremiah. There's, like, 60 chapters in Jeremiah, isn't there? Like, that would be a really long series. We'll do 10 chapters a, a Sunday. All right, perfect. All right. Or Ezekiel. Or Deuteronomy, <laughs> like Leviticus. All right, uh, what's up? The book of Daniel. We did, all right, we'll do it again. Uh, what's up? What do you say? Hebrews or first, second Kings, all right. Revelation. What's up with you guys in Revelation? Every time I ask this question, it's like, tell me about how the world's going to end, like, and millions and billions of people are going to die. It's like, Ecclesiastes, Romans. How to read the Bible. What a great, what a great question. Yeah, different ways to read the Bible. Yeah. Proverbs 15.3, okay. Anyone else? So far, Romans is winning in my mind. Did you guys know that you could read three books of the Bible and get the entire storyline? You could read Genesis, you could read Romans, and you could read Revelation, and you'll get the entire storyline of Scripture. And yet I've never done a sermon series on Romans here before. So Romans it is. All right, Romans, we're doing next. Uh, anything else? Anything else? Any other? Uh, or what about hot topics? Like, so next week, let me tell you kind of what's on the radar. Next week, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about two things. I'm going to crunch a lot into our time together. Um, I'll probably speak for pretty long. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do science versus faith. So I'm going to give you kind of like, I'm going to give you the cosmological arguments, teleological arguments. So it's like, Science, cosmologically, also biologically, and I'm also going to do subjective and objective morality. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be a intense stuff. Um, but is there any other hot topics you guys want to talk about? I and mean, we've kind of covered a lot of them. The media. the media. What about the media? Yeah. 
okay? So just kind of culture, right? Like we're living in a postmodern culture, and so like a post-Christian culture, what's it like? All right. Um, anyone else? This media is a good one. What did it say again? Okay. Anyone else? Cool. All right. Um, that's helpful. Uh, I'll think about that as we compile our next series together. All right. Um, is there any chance for a person who's not a believer to go to heaven? Yeah, you know, uh, I gave this illustration last week, right, where I said this building was on fire, and I said, imagine, like, there's only one way out, and I, I give you the illustration of my daughter, right? Like I said, imagine my daughter was on stage with me, and I found out that, like, under this stage, there was a, a little room. Inside that room, there was a lever. If she pulled that lever, the sprinklers would turn on, and as this building was on fire, everyone was running around. They were trying to go to different exits, and they found that all of the doors were completely locked, Right? And I convinced my daughter that she needed to crawl into this hole and, and pull the lever. But in doing so, it closed it off and sucked all the fire into that little room, and she burned alive. Now, because of her action, there's only one way that we could have lived, one way in which there was a way for our, us to be saved, right? Or the illustration can also be said that imagine there was a little hole in the wall where only a little, a, little, a little girl could go through. So my daughter could go through, and she could go around and unlatch one of the doors. Now there's only one way for us to get out of here. Anyone that tries to go through that way or that door or this way or that way is doomed. There's now one way out. See, we often ask, like, do all roads lead to heaven? And the answer is, no, that's absurd. And why it's absurd is because each religion teaches something fundamentally different about God. Like Islam, for example, its view of God is that he, is a, he has a conditional type of love. He doesn't love the unbeliever, and he actually commissions people to kill the infidels. And if you ask an honest Muslim who the infidels are, they'll tell you. It's anyone who is an unbeliever. Well, you, you put that against what the Christian God is, and he, he died for his enemies. That's drastically different. What about Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Buddhists or Hindu? They have 33 million gods. They are fundamentally different, right? So it's actually good teaching. It, it's good news that there's a, there's, there, there's a way, that there's one way. In the book of Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Salvation comes from no one else, for there's no name under heaven given to mankind in which we must or can be saved. Or the other one is John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, time and time again, Scripture reaffirms that there's only one way. You know what? And this question is not like theoretical for me, it's personal. My, my dad passed away and he wasn't a believer, you know. Um, but I can't allow my experiences to dictate and change what I know to be true. That's often what happens, right? Like we experience something. And so I talked about gay marriage a few weeks ago. Do you know how many Christians have grown up believing that gay marriage is wrong, but then they have a child that's gay and their opinion changes on that? I mean, if God is truly immutable, that means unchanging. That means that his word's unchanging as well. And so this has to be the primary authority that we govern our lives. It's not like I am over this. It's this is over me. I mean, Hebrews 4.12, it talks about God's word being alive and active. It is of God breathed. It's inspired by him, right? And so is there any chance for a person who is not a believer to go to heaven? The answer is no. And that's why there's a great commission on our lives, right? The commission is to tell people about the good news, that they don't have to go to hell. And last week, I told you what hell was like. It's a good question. 
What is the purpose of prayer? Is it engaging with God and requesting he change his will? Or is it simply participating in obedience with his command to pray without ceasing? Yeah, what is the purpose of prayer? Is it engaging with God? Uh, yes, it's engaging with God. Do I think we can change God's will? That's a good question. Because here's the question that predates that. Would God know that you were going to pray that thing so he's not actually changing his will, he's just aligning with what you are already going to pray for? God has something called middle knowledge or foreknowledge. It's, if you guys care about this, study something called Molinism. It's that the idea that God knows all possible outcomes. His omnisapience is that he can view all possible realities. And so he knows what you're going to ask for, what you're going to pray for, a, light, a billion years before you ever were going to, right? And so I don't know, I don't think we can change God's will. The purpose of prayer is to change your will. Uh, prayer has more of changing you than it ever does have changing God. It helps you align yourself with his will. When the Bible says that you will get the desires of your heart, it's not saying that you're going to get the girlfriend in the Ferrari. That's not what it means. It means that as your heart continues to be formed by God, it'll eventually want and love what he wants. God's will is always enacted and eventually done. So if you are aligning your heart with what God wants, your desires, the desires of your heart will be fulfilled because God's desires will be fulfilled. And that, that's what Scripture tells us time and time again. Um, so yeah, I would say it's engaging, it's being obedient. It's relational. Like if I said... Uh, What's the purpose of like talking with your girlfriend or boyfriend or your wife or your husband? It's like, well, is it to like change their will? <laughs> like so that they start like, you know, cooking the food that you want and watching the TV shows that you want? I'd be like, no, that's a selfish view of it. It's spending time. Like I enjoy talking with my wife because I enjoy her. I enjoy her presence. I want to get to know more about her, right? And so the purpose of prayer is not necessarily to change God. It's to change you. It's to make you more receptive to what he wants to do in your life through you and in this world. Uh, what's your opinion on Christians carrying guns legally? Yes. Uh, <laughs> the important question here is legally, by the way. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, of, of guns. I like them. Um, but uh, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you this, right? Yes, do guns harm people? Yes. Do you know, you know the most... There's so much here. I give a whole day on this. Um, this is not a political statement. So if, you're, if you lean upon whether it being a Republican or a Democrat, this is not, a, what I'm about to say is not a political statement. Do you know what kills more human beings yearly than guns do? Drivers. Significantly. Like, car accidents or people that hit pedestrians significantly outweigh school shootings and a plethora of other things like that. Do I think that it, may be, it should be more difficult maybe to get a firearm? Probably. Like, there should be more extensive mental health checks or whatever it may be, Right? Um, but what's my opinion on Christians carrying guns? And the, the most important part of this whole phrase is legally. Yeah, like getting a con concealed carry license, sure, that's fine. But legally is the, is the most, like don't like be carrying a gun that you don't have a license to. That would be sketchy. Don't do that, right? Um, the most important part of here is legally. And so what's my opinion? Yeah, if you want to do it, do it. If you don't, then don't. If you're afraid of guns, then don't own one. Easy enough. Like if you're afraid of a car, don't, don't own one. All right, perfect. All right. Uh, what are the current signs of the revelation prophecies of the end times? Uh, the first is that, this is like a whole other talk. If you really want to know the answer to this, I already gave a podcast uh, on this. Like, you can go on our podcast and find this. Um, here's what's crazy. Do I believe we're in the end times? Yes. But every Christian since this, the ascension of Christ has believed that we're in the end times. However, what I believe makes us more in the end times now than ever before 
is we never had the ability to create the mark of the beast than we do in the 21st century. Never, ever, ever in the history of the world. The mark of the beast is, is something that's supposed to be implanted inside every human being. All commerce, meaning the ability to buy and sell goods, are going to be on this. Your identity is going to be tethered to this. Your medical history, your ability to freely travel is going to be tethered to this like a passport. All of it is going to be tethered to this. Never in the history of the world have we had something like an RFID tracking chip, which is in your passport. It's in your license now. Uh, it's not implanted with inside you, obviously, like that. So do I think the mark of the beast is in operation today? No. But we now, for the first time in human history, have the capacity and technology to do exactly what John prophesied 2,000 years ago. So do I think the end time is going to happen in our lifetimes? I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> um, but do we have, like, what are the current signs of the, revelation, the prophecies in Revelation? Well, one was that the technology would exist. I mean, think about this. John wrote this 2,000 years ago. He had absolutely no idea what a computer was, anything like that. And so, uh, one, younger generations would become more rebellious. I think we're seeing that. Um, More division and strife, uh, famines, uh, uh, viruses, and a plethora of other things. Just click onto the news and you can like, you you almost feel like Jesus is coming back tonight, right? Like, Like you watch whether it's Fox or CNN, whatever it is, right? Like you just feel like the world is, like I just read something that uh, MIT, posted this, this thing. Uh, and if you guys know who the Rockefellers are, the Rockefellers, the, Rock, the Rockefeller Foundation, <coughs> excuse me, the Rockefeller Foundation uh, posted this thing uh, along with the MIT that they believe that there's going to be a global economic, uh, that, that civilization is going to come to a huge collapse by the year 2040. How many years is that from now? 18? Like, that's a fat bummer. Like, like, I don't know what they're, like, I don't know, but those are, like, the most elite, intelligent individuals in the world, right? And they're saying, like, by the year 2040, MIT and Rockefeller Foundation are saying that, like, the world is going to experience some type of collapse. I don't know what that means, right? But, like, or there's things like game theory, where they're, like, actively working on developing viruses that are more dangerous. Did you guys see that uh, 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 there was a news report that was uh, sent out yesterday that they're telling American citizens not to send any of their DNA to those companies that tell you like where your where your background like where your uh, where, what like what ethnicity you are and things like that uh, like what's it 23 and Me or something like that is one of the if you literally they're te- like the, the U.S. government it's telling the United States citizens to not send their DNA because they believe that China or Russia can hack those companies and develop viruses that target your specific genome. What the, where, what world do we live in? You know, like, that's crazy. They're going to make viruses that are racist. That's crazy. That's wild. You know, like, like, that's crazy, right? And so, like, are we living in the times that, like, the end, like, probably, like, and if you read the book of Revelation or you read the sign of the times in the book of Matthew, it talks about these types of things. So, yeah, not to make you, uh. All right, look, our hope is not in this world. It's in the one who brings hope to this world. His name is Jesus Christ. All right, all right. Um, all right, if, in the Bible, there's a verse about women pastors not being okay. Is women being pastors unbiblical? And what does it mean for women who feel called to go into ministry? Don't. No, I'm playing. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, all right, 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, uh, women aren't permitted to speak or teach um, in church. Uh, but if you also read, so I've been to a place in Turkey, and um, the church of Ephesus, it's in modern-day Turkey, and uh, if you go into the city, you'll see that high up on a hill, there is a temple, and that temple 2,000 years ago is a really interesting temple. It was, 
a man-made religion, and we know it was a man-made religion because part of the religion um, was men got to sleep with prostitutes whenever they wanted. That's how you could probably tell. When men get to have sex whenever they want, it's probably a bunch of men that came up with it, right? So uh, up on top of this hill was a, was a, uh, a temple for uh, uh, and part of the pagan worship was daily you had to go and do a church service. The church service was you got to pick whatever girl you wanted to in the temple and you slept with them, right? And so uh, prostitutes in the ancient world, the women had to shave their heads. And they did it because hair in the ancient world that was really like clean and nice was a, was a, like, was a sign of like this was a respectable woman. So prostitutes, they had to shave their head. So Paul wrote to Timothy saying women are supposed to wear head coverings while they walk through the doors of churches. So that if we were in a church 2,000 years ago in this city, all of the women in this room would wear head coverings. Why would Paul say that? Is that something that we need to do today? No. It was because the women who had long hair were judging the women who had short hair, saying that girl has a past. And so he just said, all the women wear head coverings, so you have no idea what their past are. And it was a sign of, so I, I'm going to teach you not how to judge people so you don't judge people. And so women being pastors, right? 2 Timothy 2.12. Uh, if you care more about this, it's called egalitarianism and complementarianism. We don't have too much time to go into it today. Do I believe it's unbiblical for women to be pastors? No. We have women pastors here. Um, I do think that there is an order, a, a, a created order in which men and women are supposed to operate, and they have different functions and things like that. But I think it's biblical for women to be pastors. Um, however, uh, no, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. If you have more questions, I'll probably do a whole, I'll, I'll, I'll write this down and do a whole night on this, um, if you care more about it. What does the Bible say about drinking? Um, did, G, did, did Jesus drink wine, yes or no? Yeah, he did. Now, do you know the alcohol content in the ancient world? Uh, so your average glass of wine in the ancient world had four times less alcohol content than it, than it does today. So, like, you know how much alcohol you had to drink, how much wine you had to drink to get drunk? Like, an ungodly amount. Like, you needed to commit yourself. You're like, today I'm getting drunk. You're like, and you had to have, like, a 55-gallon bucket of wine, right? Um, and, like, a, just a straw. Just, you know, just, <laughs> like, you need to commit yourself to getting drunk. Um, so, is the Bible against drinking? No, it's not. Like, you can, you can drink. Like, if you enjoy having a beer or whatever it is, like, do your thing. What does the Bible say about getting drunk? Well, in 1 Peter 5.18, it says to be sober-minded. It's very clear that us as believers are not allowed uh, to get drunk. Anything, yeah, not allowed to get drunk. Um, but here's the thing about alcohol. For me, it's like, why? So I started drinking in fifth grade, right? My dad was an alcoholic. One day he passed out. I saw his glass of whiskey, and I was like, well, let's see what he, he's drinking. And I just went, glup, and his freaking was dusted. I was just super drunk. And I, I drank from that, from fifth grade, all the way to my senior year of high school, December 30th. No, December 31st, 2010, the last of alcohol I ever had, right? So that was a long time, right? And so, uh, yes, I've had my experience getting drunk. In fact, that's, I hate to taste alcohol. So I would just drink as quick as I can to get as drunk as I could. Um, so yes, you can, you can drink. You can't get drunk. But for me, it's like, why though? Like, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's not good for you. It poisons your liver, even the smallest amount of it. So is, is it sinful? No. But why play with fire? Especially because it has the capacity to ruin lives. Uh, I mean, it took my dad's life. I've seen how it affects marriages. So ask if it's not right or wrong, but is it wise? Some things may not be morally wrong or right, but they just may not be wise for you to engage in, right? And I think alcohol could be one of those. All right. Um, so many good questions. All right. Uh, all right. Some of you guys wrote in like paragraphs. We're not going to be able to get into those. 
Dude, straight paragraphs. Like you wrote me a letter. <laughs> All right, we're going to go with one of these. All right. In the book of Revelations, again, chapter 11, it mentions that in the end times, only two believers will remain on earth after the rapture to spread the word of God to all before it is finished. It mentions that it's two prophets, and since all known prophets were from the Old Testament, is it possible that two who are returning to spread the good news of the gospel to all after the rapture could be Elijah or Enoch, since they never died on earth, but God allowed them to enter straight into heaven after their faithfulness to him here on earth? I have no idea. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea how to answer that question. So there's your answer. Uh, my dad gets mad at me for volunteering at church instead of working. He also gets frustrated when I speak about God at home. How do I deal with this? Hmm. This is really good. Uh, my dad gets mad at me for volunteering at church. I believe in honoring your parents. But is your dad asking you something unreasonable for you not to be volunteering? That is a good question. What do you guys think? If you have a dad that's a non-believer and you are getting more and more involved at church and it's creating strife within your family, are you supposed to honor your parents or are you supposed to honor God? But you can see how it creates like a lot of division at home, right? The truth is the Bible says that God did not come to bring peace but a sword. And he's talking about in the context of families. You know, like uh, my dad, when I told him I was going to be a, uh, a pastor, he said I was throwing my life away. He said I might as well believe in Barney or something like that. I said, thanks, Dad. Love you, too. Uh, yeah, you know, like my relationship with my dad and some of my family members got progressively worse the more and more dedicated I got to my faith. Is it worth it? Yeah. You know, like most of my family didn't show up to my wedding because it was at a church because I came a pastor and I was marrying a Christian, you know? Was it worth it? Yeah. Like, I would, I would choose that time and time again, right? Um, how do you deal with this, though? I would encourage you to know that your first and foremost priority is your relationship with God, but be respectful. Like, don't do it to agitate your parents. <coughs> that wouldn't be good, right? Like, don't, don't do it to agitate your parents. <coughs> it's not COVID. I took a test, so relax. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, <coughs> I hate being sick the worst. Uh, what's the sickest I've ever been? Oh, what a good question. Uh, what's the date? I'm just kidding. Uh, you guys ever got food poisoning before? That's the worst. That's the worst. Food poisoning is the worst. All right. Um, how can churches avoid becoming too much of a production show and let worship and other things become too much about appearance? Fire. By teaching the word of God un- uh, authentically and unapologetically. That's how. The, the, the movement just before us was called the seeker-sensitive movement. They thought that they needed to dumb down Scripture, and they needed to make the call of following Jesus less so that it would be applicable and easier. The truth is, and I'm going to let you know this, following Jesus requires 100% of your entire life. I think the seeker-sensitive movement probably sending more Christians to hell than any other movement in human history. Because it belittled the call to following Jesus. It said, you don't really need the change. It's not that big of a deal. And so how can churches avoid becoming too much of a production show? By teaching the word of God unapologetically. The cost of discipleship. It's huge. Luke 9, 23 says to pick up your cross daily and walk. It means to reorient your entire life around the commissioning of Christ. It's a big thing. 
Um, what's the most destructive type of sin? Uh, the most destructive type of sin is sexual sin. Did you guys know that in the ancient, if you read of any of Paul's letters, literally any of Paul's letters, you'll see that the very first thing that was supposed to separate Christians from the unbelieving world was their view on sexuality and how they engaged with sex. That is, was the marker in the ancient world to determine if someone was a follower of Christ. Were they sleeping with a girlfriend or boyfriend? What was their view on sexuality? Literally the very first rung of Christianity is sexuality. If you can't honor God with, 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 with sex, you're not gonna honor him with any other desire and urges you have in your life, right? And so that was the, the, the most destructive type of sin is sexual sin. And the Bible talks about this, right? It being a sin in which you sin against your own body. We've talked about the neurochemistry and much other stuff in the past about that. Vasopressin, oxytocin, becoming chemically dependent upon another person. Um, what is the best evidence for Christianity? I would say the historicity of the resurrection. Uh, I'll give you just a few facts. All right, so uh, in 1 Corinthians 16 and 15, uh, Paul talks about like if Jesus didn't res rise from the dead, this whole thing like just burn this thing. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's pointless. However, if the guy who died walked out of the grave, then surely he speaks with authority that no one else gets to speak with, right? So uh, a few facts about the resurrection. Um, number one, his tomb was empty. Uh, number two, women were the first to find the tomb. Now, that's called an embarrassing detail. In the ancient world, you would never include that, especially in a Jewish writing. Why? Because it would be like me saying, like, I, I, it'd be like me saying uh, or recording a miracle and saying a bunch of people who saw the miracle or eyewitnesses were a bunch of blind people. <laughs> like that, that, you wouldn't use blind people as evidence uh, for a miracle because they couldn't see it. Well, in the ancient world, women weren't seen as trustworthy eyewitnesses. They couldn't hold a court case. They couldn't be eyewitnesses in a court. And it's terrible, but that was the truth. And so uh, women, the fact that it's recorded in Scripture that women were the first to see the tomb is an embarrassing detail. You wouldn't record that if it wasn't actually true. Um, 600 people saw Jesus um, after, after, he, uh, after he died. And I think the most powerful was the, uh, the change in the uh, disciples' heart. You have Peter who goes from denying Jesus to being crucified upside down a few years later. Every single one of the disciples, every single one of the disciples died horrifically being crucified upside down, being beheaded, uh, going to the gallows. Um, uh, one of the ways in which some of the disciples died was they would have horses strapped to each one of their limbs and they'd run in four different, uh, four different directions. All of their limbs would get torn off, dipped in wax and burned alive. Horrific ways that these people died. No one dies for a lie. Now you ask, okay, what's the difference between like what happened on 9-11 and the, Christ, the, the early Christian disciples? Well, the people who died in Muhammad's name those people believed, in, they believed that they were actually living out the truth. And they believed it because other people told them over the last few, uh, in, in, in the, the concession of uh, the Quran and things like that over, over a very long time. However, the disciples, they were eyewitnesses to this. They would have known if they were lying. And the truth is, liars make terrible martyrs. In other words, no one dies for a lie. You go, this isn't worth it for me. Paul was an extraordinarily wealthy man, and he abandoned all of that and eventually was beheaded for his faith in Christ. No one, this is like, no one dies for this type of stuff. And so all of the early church, and especially the disciples, died for their belief in Christ. I think that's the most powerful argument. Um, you guys texted in 97 questions, so. Um, oh, my gosh. All right. Uh, <laughs> you think people had crushes on Jesus? Fire. Uh, 
That's fire. Do I think people had crushes on Jesus? You know, the Bible says that there was nothing in Jesus that was attractive. Uh, the, so he was probably five foot five. That's not tall for a dude. Uh, um, right? Like people call me short and I'm five nine, right? And a half. Uh, and so five foot five, not a, not a tall dude. The Bible says that he wasn't good in appearance. In other words, like there was nothing about his physical appearance that was magnetic, right? He, he, he wasn't handsome probably or anything along those lines. Um, obviously, so I, I, I imagine, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's a good question. I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know if it's fire, though. Um, how do you know Chelsea was the one God wanted you to marry, besides her being a devoted Christian? All right, let me tell you this whole story of me finding, uh, of Chell and I dating. Um, so I was an intern at this church, and uh, this is in 2011 and 12. And uh, we went to, on November 21st, 2011, we went to uh, our very first Guatemala trip, which launched this ministry. And so we, we were kind of like getting to know each other and just hanging out there, right, on this missions trip. Um, which, by the way, I'm trying to do a missions trip. Uh, but here's the thing. It's going to be really expensive, and it's going to be most likely in November. And it's going to be like $1,600, though. And so uh, I'll have more details for you guys. It'll be over the week of, uh, of uh, Thanksgiving. That's when we normally do it. All right, I'm gonna, all right, would you guys rather have me hold off a year so that you guys can fundraise it? Raise your hand. Or November 16th, would you rather, and that's 16th. Is it the 16th? No, November 20th, ah, whatever it is. It'll be the week of Thanksgiving. I'll tell you guys more about it next week. All right, all right, back to the story. All right, so uh, Cody, if you guys know Cody, it's her brother who was my boss at the time, and he's still my boss. Um, I, was, I was his intern in junior high specifically. And so uh, about six or nine months after uh, that Guatemala trip, she texted me, and we're texting back and forth for a really long time, for months, and she just goes, hey, I like you, do you like me? And I went, uh, I think we should just be friends. <laughs> and she's pissed, right? She's like, she's like, what am I, an ego boost? Why have, you been, why have you been texting me for the last like handful of months? And, I was, and the truth is I was just terrified of her family, right? Her dad's Doyle, the senior pastor of our church. And I, and I was kind of scared of Cody at the time because he's like mean and stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so I was like, I think we should just be friends. She's like, we need to talk and meet about this. So we met right over there where that little TV is. There was couches over there at the time. And uh, she's just reaming me. And at the end of it, like our 30-minute conversation, I was like, I got to be honest with you. I do like you. I'm just scared of your family. And she's like, I've been talking to my dad about this for like months now. And, and, and I was like, really? He's like, what, is, what, what does he think about it? And he's like, I mean, he cares that you're a good man. And that like, you know, so I was like, all right, let's try it. So we started dating. Then Cody found out. Whew. All right. So uh, I'm in my office one day and he goes, I need to talk to you outside. And I'm like, frick. Uh, and so uh, I'm like, I don't know, 20, I'm, tw- I'm 19 or 20 at the time. And uh, if you've been to our courtyard, you know that there's like, there's like tables and stuff out there. The entire office, there's a hundred employees at it. The entire office just goes to the windows and they're watching Cody just ream me. He goes, here's the first question he said. He goes, you don't have the balls to tell me you're dating my sister? And I was like, this isn't going to go well. Uh, <laughs> this isn't going to go well, isn't it? And I'm like, <laughs> so the, the, and so I don't know why he didn't want me dating his sister. Um, and so anyways, we had that whole conversation, and then uh, we dated for two and a half years. So how did I know? Um, well, one, I kept fasting and praying and asking, like, is this the one, God? You know, And I can't like, give you like, this intellectual moment. It was just I knew that this was the person for me. You know, um, She met a lot of like, the qualifications that I had. And by the way, it's okay for you to have a list of non-negotiables. It's okay for you to create a list of, uh, now, your list of non-negotiables have to be adequate to yourself. For example, if you want to marry a virgin, guess what you have to be? A virgin. Like, you can't expect 
expectations of the other person that you yourself aren't upholding, right? So if you didn't want, if, if you have on your list, I don't want them to have a sexual history, you can't have a sexual history. That's, that's, that's hypocritical. Um, I want this person to be a follower of Christ. Guess what you have to be? A follower of Christ, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, 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 I kept fasting and praying and asking God and, and, and yeah, and I took the process really slow. We dated for two and a half years and we've been married for almost eight now. Uh, all right, we'll do a few more. Uh, paragraphs. Why do you keep writing paragraphs? Um, are you sent straight to hell if you commit suicide? Can God forgive a murderer? Mm, suicide is just self-murder. So can God forgive that? Yes, of course. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was the Catholic Church that taught this, that like suicide was like a death sentence to hell. Nowhere in Scripture is that found. God, when he looks at person, a person sees in them in totality. He sees them if they have mental health or whatever it is. Someone who takes their life obviously has mental health. Actually, in a few weeks, um, August 6th and 7th, I want you guys to come to main campus. We have a guest speaker. His name is Chris Hilkin. And uh, one year ago, uh, this weekend, uh, his wife committed suicide in a mental health institution in uh, uh, Arizona and left him with five kids. And he shares his story. Um, his wife didn't sleep for 10 days. And... Uh, it ruined her brain. Um, it created so much stress and things in her brain uh, because of fear and things like that. She didn't sleep for 10 days, and it, it, it literally made her take her life uh, a handful of months and weeks into this, uh, into this um, mental, health, uh, mental health hospital. And so suicide is another topic, I think, of, of, of murder, but it's also another topic of mental health. So can God forgive somebody that kills another human being? Yes. Can God forgive self-murder? Yes, right? Absolutely. So no, it doesn't directly send someone to hell. Again, what sends someone to hell is that they have not developed a relationship with Jesus Christ. Last question. Are tattoos sinful? No. Uh, so in the book of Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, it says do not to carve your body or to uh, pierce your body or ink your body. Well, there are three types of laws in the Old Test Testament. There's civic laws, there's separation laws, and there are ones specific to the Levitical uh, priesthood. Uh, the separation laws are the ones in which uh, tattoos, piercings, things fall under. Um, we are not Jewish and we do not live in Israel. And so the, the God wanted the Jews thousands of years ago to look different than the rest of the world. It was the reason that they couldn't wear cotton and, and, and other woven fabrics together. They couldn't eat shellfish or pig or a plethora of other things. They couldn't get earrings. They had to have specific hair because God wanted them to look separate from the rest of the world around them. Uh, the Bible says that, uh, that us as followers of Christ are no longer under that type of law. We don't live in Israel. We're not Jewish people. And so our tattoo sinful uh, no, just don't get ones like Charles Manson has on his face, right? Don't get like a swastika and you're dead center of your forehead, right? Other than that, um, yeah, tattoos are not sinful. However, uh, just be mindful that it's going to be on your body forever and ever. All right, we have like 50 more questions and we didn't get, obviously didn't get the chance to go through them all. If you have any questions, I'll hang up here for a little bit. Um, let me pray for you guys. Next week, uh, we are doing uh, Science versus Faith. Uh, subjective and objective morality. So we'll be here for that. Maybe invite some friends. Other than that, let me pray for us. Father, I am so thankful, God, that you are a good God, one that is uh, intimately involved in our life. So I pray, Father, that you continue to convict us um, of the sin, God, that's on our life so we may move forward in faith. I ask, Lord God, that you would continue to help us be truth seekers so we may find you its author. With that being said, I ask that you would continue to cultivate our hearts, help us be impassioned, God, by you. Help us love you like you love us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, 
Amen. All right, a few things. Um, we have Otter Pops in the back right now, which are fire. And then next week, oh no, not next week, in a few weeks, we have an event coming up. We're doing an outdoor movie. And so check our Instagram so you guys can vote on what movie you're going to be watching. Other than that, see you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.